Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to my Maritime podcast and programme, the only regular broadcast about Ireland's maritime sector, its development, culture, history and traditions. How will they be affected by the increasing pressure on marine space, the waters around our coastline? It's going to become a major issue and is not being given a lot of attention. There are demands for marine protected areas, MPAs, special protected areas, SACs, special conservation areas, ORES, offshore renewable energy, wind farm locations, quite a lot. There is a target for 30% of Irish waters to be covered by protection within six years, 2030, bringing regulatory controls. Marine spatial planning is very important. What will be the effects on recreational activities, on water sports, boating, angling, sailing, on commercial activities, the fishing industry, on commercial shipping? There's a lot involved. We're designating a new special protection area for seabirds under the EU Birds Directive. This new SPA is just off the Wexford coast. In the new year, I'll be publishing the Marine Protected Areas Bill. This vital legislation will put us on the right path to achieve our target of 30% marine protection by 2030. That's Green Party TD Malcolm Noonan, Minister for Heritage, announcing on his social media on the 11th of January that an area of the seas off County Wexford, bigger than County Wexford itself, was being designated by government as Ireland's new special protection area for birds. The second time he announced such a major designation, the previous one on the northwest coast. And on both occasions, he's been strongly criticised for lack of public consultation. Using the European Union's oldest piece of nature legislation, the Birds Directive, dating back to 1979, he didn't need to. However, in the same time space, his ministerial boss, the senior minister in the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage, Dara O'Brien, launched a public consultation with marine users of the seas off Wexford, open until the 9th of April, considering clarifying them as a special protection area. Bit of a difference there between the two ministers. Minister Noonan refused my request for an interview about his announcement. His lack of public consultation was also criticised by the major environmental organisation Fair Seas, which welcomed the protection of birds but underlined the need for communication and consultation. Dr Donald Griffin, their campaign coordinator, talked to me from his home in County Tyrone. Fair Seas are a coalition of leading ENGOs and network in Ireland. So they include um, some of our partners that have been working in marine conservation and conservation more generally in Ireland for decades. And we are ourselves hosted by the Irish Fair Seas as a a campaign project, um, are hosted by the Irish Environmental Network as well. So we know that there is new forthcoming MPA marine protected area legislation coming, um, but also that actually when it when it is progressed, that that legislation is really, really strong, is ambitious and is fit for purpose and ultimately gives a framework to really deliver for nature at sea. And you've made a very important point in the the most recent announcement by Minister Malcolm Noonan in relation to the area of special protection for seaboards off the southeast coast 
that there's need for stakeholder engagement better than has happened up to now because as far as I can understand, they didn't know this was going to happen. Yeah, that, that's true. And we didn't know it was going to happen either. Um, although we have, over the past 18 months or so, um, there have been various uh, special areas of conservation, SECs and special protection areas, as SBAs, in Ireland designated under Minister Noonan, under the House, um, Department of Housing and Local Government Heritage. And that is fantastic news. Now, don't get me wrong, it is absolutely fantastic news. And we have had every opportunity to welcome those designations. Ireland's coverage of marine protected area, I mean, a short 15, 18 months ago was one of the lowest in, in, in Europe and it's still not towards the top of the member states' rankings, but it's up and around just under the 10% now. And that is to be welcomed. You know, we need this. We talk about achieving 30% of Ireland's seas as an MPA by 2030. And, you know, 2030 will be here soon enough. So progress on designation is fantastic. But it is also important about how we do those designations and who we talk to and how the process, I guess. And, you know, the SPAs, such as the one that was designated off the, the Wexford Coast, is designated under EU law, under the Birds Directive. Fantastic piece of legislation. It dates back to 2009 or earlier. But it does a, a narrow focus in a number of ways. Uh, and it has a narrow focus in the terms of its designation, it can only designate sites on evidence based on ecological science, on the case for the species, in this case seabirds, or if it's on land, is the birds for which it's trying to protect. So it doesn't take in social um, factors, it doesn't take in economic factors, it's purely on the conservation merits. That means if it's based on the ecological science, the conservation science, then those are the best areas to help those birds we're trying to protect. So that's fantastic. But it is narrow. And then the other way in which the SPA, um, the Birds Directive, is narrow in terms of this consultation that you mentioned, in terms of uh, the, the, the legal requirements for consulting local people, stakeholders, businesses, industry, all these groups of people that you know, may earn a living from this area of sea or they may um, use the sea recreationally or they may uh, be conservationists or, you know, or individuals, whoever. So it's quite narrow. So the EU Birds Directive doesn't require that the Minister of the Government um, does a whole host of consultation engagement that, you know, we would like to see under the new legislation that's forthcoming. But it doesn't exclude the Minister from having a a more transparent and open uh, kind of conversation with the public about what the plans are in terms of, you know, individual SPAs, but also the network of Ireland's special protection areas. You know, how many more are in the pipeline for designation and when can we expect the site-specific conservation objectives of those to be published? Um, when can we expect the conservation management measures to be published um, for these individual sites? Um, you know, of the sites that we already have at sea, are they, do we have the evidence uh, that they're being useful um, already? Do we know that they're in good condition or in favourable status or are they in bad condition or are they unfavourable status? So there's a shroud there's a then of kind of opaqueness in terms of the, the whole process. Now, the, the minister, I should say, is following a very clear uh, and methodical process 
to ensure that the SPA designation is done right, and that is completely to be welcomed because if it, you know we want the minister to do things to the letter of the law. But as I said, the next step after he's done his requirements under the EU birth directive, in my opinion, I would love to see kind of more transparency on what's coming next and what's in the pipeline, and you know time time frames and timelines for next steps as well. Because it, I feel like you know the public deserve it. You know, the people on the coast and located in those areas deserve it. We know that the, the government and Minister Noonan and his officials have all accepted and acknowledged the importance of good stakeholder engagement and consultation with local stakeholders. You know, they, they, they highlight that as being a really critical aspect of the new forthcoming bill. So it strikes me that if they recognise it as important in the designation of whatever new sites may come along in the future, then surely then that also um, applies to the designation of of SPAs or SACs that although are born out of different primary legislation are still designating new conservation sites at sea. So it's just about unwrapping that uh, shroud of of opaqueness and being more transparent more about what is happening and what is planned for our seas and parts of our seas. Um, and, And I think that will ultimately benefit not just society um, and stakeholders themselves, but actually benefit the, the 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 features and the and the species and habitats of which these areas are, are designed to protect. As an environmental organisation, Fair Seas has been very clear in pointing out that in this case, in the Wexford case, which has caused some controversy, the government failed to communicate as it should, and that communication. Isn't it? It's going to be integral to getting agreement from all sides. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Communication is key. What people don't want is to be surprised by any new designations, you know, um, that may come along. Uh, even for designations that may have no impact on, you know, a person that's living locally or is a local stakeholder, you know, it's still, I think people want to be involved to whatever extent they can. They want to know what's going on in their local area. They want to feel like it's not a, a totally top-down process. There's evidence from all around the world that shows that when you involve people and let people know about new designations of these kinds on the coast or even on land, that when you involve people and you involve stakeholders, that actually that is a better atmosphere then for garnering support for that area because I think morally it's the right thing to do. But then also you do it because actually from a conservation perspective, it's the right thing to do too. Dr. Donald Griffin of Fair Seas. Marine spatial planning and involvement of stakeholders of the public is going to be very important in protecting the seas. I'm writing more about this in the February edition of the Marine Times newspaper. This month brings Valentine's Day, February the 14th, a date with a lot of maritime history, as Anton O'Callaghan tells us. February the 14th is mostly known as Valentine's Day, but has a significance in maritime history far removed from romantic exploits. Other of course, than the romanticism of sailing the seas. In 1813, it was the day when the first ever United States naval warship rounded the legendary Cape Horn and entered the Pacific Ocean. This was the frigate Essex, commanded by Captain David Porter, 
and that was 35 years after Valentine's Day in 1778, when the legendary Paul Jones, he of the US Navy during the Revolutionary War, or the American War of Independence against Britain, however you wish to view it, took the first ever salute to the Stars and Stripes flag of the United States in a European country. That took place at Quiberon, where the French were supportive of the states in their war against the British in America. He was in command of the US-flagged sloop of war, the Ranger, in which he had raided British waters, captured several merchant ships, and caused chaos for the Royal Navy, which sought but failed to catch him in the Irish Sea. On another Valentine's Day in 1840, Officers from the USS Vincenze, a 703-ton Boston-class sloop of war then at peace, was exploring the Antarctic and officers from it made the first landing on a piece of floating ice. Those were all sailing ships of the time and sails needing masts to fly them aloft would lead to a tragedy on yet another Valentine's Day particularly noted in maritime history for the killing of another legend, Captain James Cook, the great navigator. That happened on February 14th, 1779. Cook led three voyages, charting areas of the globe for Great Britain. On his third and what proved to be his final voyage, he got to the islands of Hawaii, which he had first sighted over a year before he was killed there. After being around there for over a year, the natives who had first welcomed his expedition got tired of the British, as the British did of the natives. As the two ships of the expedition, HMS Resolution and HMS Discovery, eventually headed for home, gales damaged the main mast of the Resolution so badly that it could not fly enough sail and had to return to Kealakekau Bay in the Hawaii Islands. What happened then is described by an officer in the ship's official log. Our return to this bay was as disagreeable to us as it was to the inhabitants, for we were tired of each other. They had been oppressed and were weary of our alliance. It was evident from the looks of the natives, as well as every other appearance, that our friendship was now at an end. While the resolution was anchored in the bay, the Hawaiians had allegedly begun stealing from the foreigners. One of the ship's two longboats was stolen. To try to obtain its return, Cook and his men attempted to kidnap the chief of Hawaii. That was a bad decision. The chief, given to understand he was being invited to the ship, headed off with Cook and his men, his sons following, but his wife was more perceptive of the British and suspected otherwise that he was being abducted. And a confrontation followed in which Cook and his men were faced by crowds of natives. When the chief refused to go further down the beach to the ship's boarding boat, Cook and his men aimed their guns at the natives. With the flat of his sword, Cook struck Chief Kanaina, who then grappled with him, and with a shark-toothed club he was carrying, struck the navigator on the head. Cook fell to the sand, and Malie developed. Cook was fatally stabbed. His sailors and marines opened fire on the natives. Four marines were killed, others injured, as they retreated to their landing boat to get back to the resolution. Natives were also killed, thought to include the island's chief. A young officer on watch duty aboard the Resolution named William Bly, who would be the future captain of the HMS Bounty, which would also become a major part of history for a mutiny aboard, claimed to see Cook's dead body dragged up the beach to a hill where it was torn to pieces by the natives. So ended Valentine's Day on the islands of Hawaii. And finally, on a different matter, here's a quote from the Irish Independent. 
The deep sea and inshore fisheries of Ireland have for a long while been in a bad way. The fishermen themselves, from Arklow to Skelligs, from the Skelligs to the coast of Tyrconnell, have wrought hard to get their living by their nets. The piece goes on to say that even when fishermen get a good haul, either they have to sell it at starvation prices to some profiteering exploiters or to throw it back into the sea. That, and so much more, was in a report on a meeting in Arklow on February the 16th 1924, just 100 years ago. And what's more, it was presided over by Father McSweeney. Any relation, Tom? A man of vision, Anton, though not a relation to my knowledge. Safety at sea is vital. Flares have been used as visual distress signals for many decades. While they burn bright, they don't last long. In these modern times, what about the use of electronic visual distress signals? Would they be better recognised? Experienced Irish professional seafarer, working at present in the UK offshore sector, Martino Trasig, has carried out a survey with interesting results, about which he told me at his home in Skibbereen, West Cork. I was doing a bit of work on a UK registered vessel, and I was reviewing the marine notices, Sardia. M notices that come in from the MCA in the UK and there was one specifically about these type of uh, distress signals and they were calling them EVDS, electronic visual distress signals and they were strongly recommending not to use them which came as a great surprise to me because I thought they had a lot of benefits and were very practical. So uh, I sent an email to the MCA uh, after reading that M notice and uh, I explained to them my background as a professional seaman but also as a as a keen sea kayaker. And uh, they sent me an email back eventually. Uh, and to be honest, it was, it was slightly patronizing, maybe condescending in its tone. Re- re- basically, we reiterated what they'd said in the Marine Notice, uh, in the M Notice, and in a, you know, not so many words were telling me to go away and mind my own business. I didn't do anything about that. But um, maybe less than a year later, I was uh, doing a training course in the National Maritime College. Uh, I was working for the Irish Coast Guard at the time. And one of the classes we had was all about distress signals. It was all about the SOLAS approved uh, distress signals that we're all very familiar with. Uh, but there was no mention of these EVDS. So I had a, a little chat with uh, the lecturer after the class, explained to him wh- what EVDS were. He'd never heard of it before. And I sent him the email that I'd had back from the MCA. And uh, he was very interested in that. And he asked, could uh, he share that with the other members of staff in the National Maritime College? I said he could, he could, no problem. And then the next day, one of the lecturers in the college came up to me and said, that would make a great research project uh, to do your Bachelor of Science in Nautical Science. And I thought, actually, yeah, it would be. So that's how I got started on the research into EVDS. Basically, the, the main focus of my research was into recognizability because the, the main concern that the MCA expressed in their marine notice uh, was that EVDS, electronic visual distress signals, would not be recognized as distress signals. Um, and therefore could not, may, might not initiate a, a distress alert if in use. So my research sought to find out if that was in fact true because I couldn't uh, see any evidence to support that claim. So I wanted to find out if EVDS would be recognised by both seafarers and recreational boaters and general members of the public. Would they be recognised as a distress signal if they were seen at sea? Or would they be more or less recognisable than already established distress signals? So that's how I got started on the, on the research. What are the findings you came up with? Well, the, basically, I found that 
the EVDS that I tested in, in the research had at least as high or higher recognizability than handheld flares. The rocket parachute flares, the kind that we're familiar with from TV that fire up into the sky and they stay up there for a couple of minutes and they drift down slowly on a parachute, they had a very high level of recognizability. About 80% of the respondents recognized the video of that. So that was quite clearly a high level. But handheld flares uh, had a very, very low level of recognizability. It was uh, about 30%. Um, and the, of the EVDS, there was four or five different EVDS uh, that I put in comparison with that. And the least recognizable of those was as highly recognizable as the handheld flares. The push, therefore, you'd have to question exactly what's being used for, for, for safety and the recognition, wouldn't you? Distress signals kind of fall into two categories. There's an alerting function and there's a, a locating function. So um, the EVDS and handheld flares have one thing in common, that they're both, both designed for the locating function. So once a distress alert has already been initiated, and there are many ways today to initiate a distress alert, it could be by firing a rocket flare, it could be by calling Mayday on a VHF, it could be by setting off a PLB or an EPRB. There's many ways to initiate a distress alert. But once the alert has been sent out and rescue units are on path to, to find the casualty, be that in a helicopter or in a lifeboat or, or whatever they happen to be using, it can be difficult to zone in on where a small casualty is in the water, particularly at nighttime in the dark. So that's where the second form of distress signal comes in, the locating distress signals. So a handheld flare is a good example. It's very bright, but it doesn't, doesn't burn for very long, but it burns very brightly. And EVDS form the same function. They're not as bright as, as a handheld flare, but they last for much longer. And there was a lot of research done in the US a number of years ago into the conspicuity or how, or how conspicuous those lights are. And that research had some very interesting findings. Um, and they, they found that uh, brightness is not the same as conspicuity, that sometimes a less bright light can be more conspicuous and more easily spotted by the human eye than a very bright light such as that from a handheld flare. What kind of reaction did you get now? You, 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 you obviously, the MCA, you've outlined the British agency. What about the Irish situation? Did you present your findings to Irish rescue agencies? I, I did. I, I sent my findings to the Marine Survey Office and to the Irish Coast Guard and to Water Safety Ireland and a number of other people. I also sent the, my findings back to the MCA and uh, to the US Coast Guard and the Australian Coast Guard because I referenced some of their research and um, and legislation in the, in the study. Um, interestingly, the MCA, after their initial response to my first email, which was quite condescending, they, they, they had a very different tone in the in their response when I sent them my findings. They basically said that uh, they thanked me for it and they said they would take it into consideration in future uh, marine notices about EBDS. The uh, Marine Survey Office in Dublin was less positive. They, again, they thanked me for, for my research. They, they said they read it and it was, they said it, they found it interesting. And after that, then they basically quoted the MCA Marine notice back to me, practically word for word, talking about recognizability and they said they will not be changing their, their approach to EVDS. Um, I can understand their approach in a way because they basically, you know, everything has to be wheel marked for use in Europe. Um, it has to has to be approved and stuff. I can understand why they can't just turn around and willy nilly approve the use of EVDS or recommend the use of EVDS. But I think at the very least, though, they should be making seafarers and water users aware of the existence of EVDS. If there are concerns about recognizability, I think the best way to to address those concerns is through education. 
So if we can educate seafarers about the existence of EBDS and how we might be able to recognize them if we see them at sea, and even for the coastal population, people who walk along the coast to sail, um, you know, who swim, if they could be educated about how to recognize EBDS, the, the chances of being recognized in the event of an emergency would only increase. Martino Trasic, known widely in the marine sphere as TASH, with a very interesting piece of research for the maritime safety agencies to consider. 81 rivers are open for salmon and sea trout fishing this year. With the details, here's Miles Kelly from Inland Fisheries Ireland. Hello again, Tom. 2024 is well underway now, but there was great excitement for salmon anglers back on New Year's Day when the first salmon of the season was caught. It was a beautiful bright salmon caught and released by James Kenny who was fishing on the River Lennon in County Donegal. So anyway, here I am back again for another year, and as always, another salmon season means another suite of salmon regulations to help ensure that we can continue to fish for this iconic species for many more seasons to come. For 2024, 81 rivers are open for salmon and sea trout fishing. There will be 42 rivers open where anglers can keep a fish, and 39 open to catch and release angling only. Overall, it's good news and the general improvements in stocks from 2023 have been maintained for 2024. However, the stocks of salmon in each river are completely dependent on us all increasing our efforts to face up to the environmental, climate and biodiversity impacts we make on this island and out at sea. For all the details of what rivers are open, catch and release are closed, visit fishinginireland.info. Salmon fishing in Ireland has seen many changes over the last 50 years. Changes in equipment, changes in access to waters, changes in water quality, changes in the numbers of returning fish, and changes in rules and regulations. One thing that hasn't changed is the excitement of hearing of a big fish caught. It's the kind of news that spreads like wildfire. It gives the anglers the belief that maybe tomorrow it'll be them with the big one at the end of their line. This year, Glenda Powell of the Blackwater Salmon Fishery is launching the Fish Live Learn with Glenda Powell Irish Salmon Challenge. This challenge is endeavouring to return the big salmon of Ireland to the standing they deserve, while also promoting the conservation of the species. For many years, anglers have made the fish itself the trophy. With this challenge, Glenda is giving anglers an added incentive to return the fish and still have the catch honoured. The Irish Salmon Challenge Trophy is especially designed and commissioned traditional Irish bowron, crafted in Connemara for Glenda by Maliki Cairns and his team at Roundsong Musical Instruments. Cadence Fly Fishing, Bertha's Gin, Fishpal, Celtic Flycraft and the Irish Fly Fair have all donated prizes for the lucky winner, whose name and catch will be engraved onto the trophy. For the full list of rules and to find out more on the challenge, visit glendapowellfishing.com. In other news, IFI and the ESB are working together to make fishing more accessible to anglers in Ireland. The wide range of permits to fish in ESB waters can now be purchased online at Inland Fisheries Ireland's website, permits.fishinginireland.info. The ESB fisheries include Palafuca, that's Blessington Lakes, at the top of the Liffey system, Inescara Salmon Fishery on the River Lee, Acero Lake on the Urn system, the lower Shannon Trout and Salmon Fisheries on the Shannon River, and the Mulcair River. In addition, permits for the Castle Salmon Fishery on the River Shannon will be available shortly. And the ESB also allow boating by Lawson's, on Palafuca, Inescara and Acero. Anglers and other boaters, sailors and kayakers can now purchase this permit online. You can buy all these permits and many more at permits.fishinginireland.info. Miles Kelly, and so it's time to go ashore again from my Maritime Podcast, the only regular broadcast coverage of the Irish maritime sector. 
Sound production by Justin Marr. We're on podcast services, on the community radio station's local network, and on social media. Keep in touch through the program website at Tom McSweeney Maritime Podcast.ie. That's Tom McSweeney Maritime Podcast.ie. Email the program to Tom McSweeney Podcast at gmail.com. That's email Tom McSweeney Podcast at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 555 197. 0872 555 197. Until next month's program, the usual wish of fair sailing.